0: It's Tuesday, September 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Congress is back in session, and as usual, tons to do and not much time. Top on lawmakers' to-do list is some type of action on gun control after mass shootings that happened in Texas and Ohio. Democrats are ramping up impeachment talks once again, and another shutdown could be on the horizon. Melanie Zanona, congressional reporter at Politico, joins us for the top things to watch for as Congress gets back to work. Next, as vaping-related illnesses and deaths are getting headlines, the FDA is cracking down on Juul, one of the top e-cigarette companies. The FDA has said that Juul has ignored the law because it marketed its products as less harmful than cigarettes without FDA approval. Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios, joins us for the vape crackdown. Finally, there's a growing trend of workers who are leaving big cities and taking their jobs with them to smaller cities. The increase of employees working remotely is causing places like Boise, Idaho to grow fast. And while some people find a higher quality of life by moving, these cities are also going through growing pains. Ben Eisen, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: We want less cities to be like Dayton, Ohio, to be less like Parkland, to be less like Odessa and Midland. And we need action from Congress to have the upper row down vote on H.R. 8.
0: Joining us now is Melanie Zanona, congressional reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Melanie. Hi, thanks for having me. Congress is back in session. There's a ton of stuff to do. And I don't know, it always seems like there's not enough time to really get it all done chief among the to-do list, for at least for Democrats in the House, is some type of action on gun control. Let's run through the top storylines of what Congress is going to be getting to. Gun control figures high on that list.
2: That's exactly right. And lawmakers are returning to Washington for the first time since the string of deadly mass shootings yeah. that we saw over the August work period. So they are going to be trying to address this in some ways. But there are differences between the House, which is led by the Democrats, and the Senate, which is led by the GOP, about what they want to do here. Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans are potentially going to be looking at a package of gun proposals from the president. But he has not said where he is on a number of these issues. We still don't know if he supports stronger background checks or if he's going to end up supporting something smaller. And the GOP has said, we just cannot support anything until we know for sure that the president supports it.
0: You mentioned these two mass shootings that happened. They happened early in August. We had the entire month of August, really, for people to think about it. And obviously, nothing was going to get done because Congress was not in session. So now is the time to act. And as you mentioned, Republicans really have no leadership on this. They don't know where the president's going to go. Mitch McConnell has said he's not going to put any measure on the floor unless it has the president's support. So if the president doesn't step up and either release a plan or signal his Endorsement of something, nothing's going to happen all over again.
2: It'll probably be a repeat of what we saw last year after the deadly Parkland shooting. Congress talked a big game. Trump himself talked about background checks, but then the NRA got in his ear, his Republican allies got in his ear and pulled him back a little bit. And what Congress ended up passing was a really small, narrow package that addressed things like school safety. It wasn't comprehensive. It didn't include any new gun control measures. And I suspect that if anything does get passed on Capitol Hill, it's probably going to be something narrower. Like red flag laws is something they've talked about, which is allowing the courts to take away guns from people who are deemed dangerous or, you know, instituting the death penalty for shooters of these mass these mass shootings. So it's, it's probably going to be something like that.
0: One of the other big things that are happening is, once again, it seems like we're at the heels of another sh- possible shutdown. The House is going to vote on some stopgap bills to avert another shutdown. This would be the third shutdown under President Trump, if it happens, obviously. Uh, but that's another one. There's not much time really to negotiate all these bills before they go on recess once again.
2: Right. And I've been covering Congress for a long time, and this is how they operate. They don't operate unless they have a deadline and they're being forced to pass something. So once again, they're up against the clock government funding runs dry on September 30th. So they only have a few weeks here to get something done. And it's just not enough time to pass these large appropriation bills. So it looks like what's going to happen is they're going to pass a stopgap funding bill, which would just temporarily fund the government at the current levels. It looks like maybe a few weeks, perhaps a few months, they're still up in the air about just how long it would fund the government. But the point being, it's not going to contain any new money for Trump's wall. And that could be a huge problem for the president.
0: That's definitely going to be a sticking point because that's why there was a shutdown the last time. So if they're not going to give him more money, it's going to be tough there. Democrats have so much on their agenda. that It feels like that's all we hear about. House Democrats have unveiled their impeachment probe parameters right now. That's another one of the things that Is also kind of confusing because it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of public enthusiasm to go through some of these type of impeachment proceedings. But the Democrats have started to lay that groundwork now again.
2: There isn't public support there. And Speaker Pelosi has reminded Democrats on a conference call just recently that the public sentiment isn't there yet. But at the same time, she knows that she has this liberal base that is clamoring for impeachment. She has a number of members, more than half the Democratic caucus, who has called for this. So they are taking steps to show that they are holding the president accountable, that they are looking into this. So essentially what Pelosi is doing is giving her troops a leash here, a long leash, to look into this. But at the end of the day, she's not going to move on impeachment unless the American public supports that. And it's just not clear that they are there yet. And Democrats are hoping to sort of move away from the Mueller report. That's something that we're hearing. They're shifting more towards the idea that the president could be corrupt. They're looking at things like military spending at Trump properties. They're looking at these hush money payments to porn stars, those sorts of things that they think are a little bit easier for the public to understand as opposed to something long and complex like the Mueller report.
0: One of the other interesting things is this slew of announcements from GOP members about either retiring or resigning. I think overall we have 15 so far, but over the summer recess, eight new people said that they would not be seeking seats again.
2: So basically right now, all of Washington is on retirement watch is what we've been calling it. We have our list of members that we're looking at. It's a mix of people who are in really tough districts that they could be up for a tough battle next year. It's other people who have just been around for a long time. They don't, feel optimistic about their chances of winning back the House next year. And they're just pretty pessimistic in general. So being in the minority is no fun for these members. A lot of them are deciding to quit instead of stick around and hang out in the political wilderness. But I think tomorrow, this North Carolina special election where Trump and his allies are going in hard and trying to get a win here is also going to be another test. If they lose in another suburban district, I think you might see even more GOP retirements from these guys who are in tough districts in the suburbs and are worried about their chances next year.
0: Melanie Zanona, congressional reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The recent surge over the last year is large due, and we've got to own this, to the use of Juul a USB-shaped e-cigarette with high levels of nicotine that now commands the majority of the US e-cigarette marketplace. Joining us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Marisa. Thank you so much. The crackdown on vaping is coming pretty hard right now. Grabbing all the headlines are all these illnesses across the country in several states uh, there's severe lung illnesses linked to vaping. These are mostly in younger people. There have been a few people that have died because of this. I think right now the focus is mainly on vaping that has THC in it. That seems to be one of the main culprits. Although there's a lot of cases where people said they were vaping nicotine only. So that's kind of what's grabbing the headlines right now. But beyond that, Juul, which is one of the biggest vaping companies, if not the biggest vaping company right now, is getting slammed by the FDA And this is all has to do with misleading marketing, which has been kind of a criticism on a lot of vaping companies since the very beginning. Marisa, tell us what the FDA is saying right now.
3: The FDA has been going back and forth against Juul for what seems like over a year now. So it was this time last year, pretty close to it, that the FDA had launched an investigation on Juul's marketing practices. And if it had any relation into what we now call an e-cigarette epidemic among teenagers and youths, right? So Monday, the FDA sent a warning letter to Juul, basically just like threatening with fines or, you know, product seizure for misleading marketing its vaping technology, which has been a huge criticism when it comes to flavor pods and things that would attract younger consumers like flavors like Tutti Frutti, lemon, grape, you know, strawberry, all these kinds of different flavors that wouldn't necessarily appeal to
0: maybe adults. And one of the big focuses right now, too, is obviously a lot of vaping products are billed as a way to get away from smoking cigarettes. And in a lot of the ads for Juul, they say you got to make the switch. It's better for you than smoking regular tobacco products. And that's the other thing that the FDA is hitting Juul on is saying, well, you haven't gone through the proper testing. You haven't gotten clearance from the FDA to actually say that. So you have to stop in the meantime.
3: There are studies out there that prove that vaping is better than a traditional cigarette, right? But what the acting FDA commissioner is saying is that Juul didn't go through the proper channels in its ability to advertise in that way, right? So a lot of this is asking the question if Juul had misled consumers and if they should have done a better job of warning people that vaping is an e-cigarette and e-cigarettes contain nicotine, which is very addictive. And vaping nicotine is vastly different than smoking a traditional cigarette. We were taught from the 21st century and late 20th century that smoking causes coughing, wheezing, phlegm, and the technology of vaping is so different from that. And teens don't have those obvious symptoms so there's a disconnect there that they're doing something to their body that may be harmful and so the bottom line is that health officials are coming out and speaking out and they're really concerned on these long-term effects of what you mentioned earlier which is people ingesting more nicotine than they would with traditional cigarettes right and yeah. that addiction is, you know, in teenagers are showing sign of nicotine toxicity and respiratory problems.
0: That really leads us right into the discussion we're having now with all of these vaping illnesses from the traditional cigarettes, obviously all these cancer causing byproducts of burning tobacco. We're not getting that in this aerosol form with these e-cigarettes, but there hasn't been enough long-term research into the effects of vaping. And as these other chemicals are put in there, I know the flavoring was a big thing. People are buying bootleg Juul products and other vape products. You don't know what's in it. And we don't know what these chemicals are doing to your lungs when it goes in there. And just speaking about how the increased usage in schools are, there was a hearing last month, I think, the FDA was hearing testimony. And they they had two high school students recount a story saying, you know, Juul came to the school and told us it was a lot safer. And the FDA at any moment is going to say it's safer than cigarettes. And this is exactly what they're trying to put the brakes on. It's like none of this has happened. You guys are deceptively marketing all of this stuff.
3: When the FDA last September came out with its report about e-cigarettes and how it has such a big influence on minors, pretty much showing that 77% of high schoolers have used e-cigarettes at some point, right? And the inhale of vape or Juul for say, for the sake of the argument, it is inhaled so smoothly that you don't really realize that it's an e-cigarette and there's like a real lack of communication there. So Juul has until um, September 24th to respond to the FDA. It already has said that it's going to fully cooperate. And we're going to see what kind of information the FDA has to share with us.
0: Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: you're also seeing a lot of people leaving places like San Francisco and Los Angeles for even smaller cities like Boise, cities in Utah, seeing people leave New York for Charlotte, North Carolina, and Orlando, Florida, places that just aren't often associated with sort of this worker migration that people tend to talk about.
0: Joining us now is Ben Eisen, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Ben.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: We're gonna be talking about workers leaving big cities for smaller ones and taking their jobs with them. This is this whole thing of working remotely from home, a lot more people are starting to do it. And people that are can do freelance or a lot of people that are constantly traveling for work, they're leaving these big expensive metro cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and they're moving to a lot of these smaller cities Boise, Idaho, Denver, Austin, Texas. Tell us a little bit about this uh, shift in migration for these workers.
1: It's pretty interesting. I mean, when you think about people leaving big cities for smaller ones, often Denver comes to mind, Austin comes to mind, Portland, Oregon. These are sort of the places where people are flocking to. But one of the interesting things we found is it's not just those cities. You're also seeing a lot of people leaving places like San Francisco and Los Angeles for even smaller cities like Boise, cities in Utah, seeing people leave New York for Charlotte, North Carolina, and Orlando, Florida, places that just aren't often associated with sort of this worker migration that people tend to talk about.
0: We hear stories all the time about the rising prices of homes, especially in places like Los Angeles and I mean New York it's almost impossible really in the city area what other reasons do people have for leaving these big cities
1: Housing and cost of living tends to really be the biggest one but when you talk to people who have made the shift it's often a bit more than that it's people who have been kind of disenchanted with where they've been living for a long time and they want somewhere where they can hike or they want somewhere that has you know, mountain biking trails or something that that's lacking where they are and, and that they can find elsewhere. And you often hear of conversation of these lifestyle cities. That's really where people are going to places that, you know, have easy proximity to things that kind of make the quality of life better than where they were before.
0: If you spoke to a few families specifically that said they were living paycheck to paycheck in, in let's say, the L.A. area, and then in one case, they moved to Boise, Idaho, and the expense of living is 35% less than living in L.A. They were able to buy a house twice as big as their old place. The higher quality of life just jumps up immediately almost.
1: Absolutely. You have people who just are able to really get what they were missing elsewhere. You might be living paycheck to paycheck one place, and all of a sudden you're rich somewhere else because the cost of living just drops off so dramatically. And I mean, it's important to note, I think this this really depends on people who can kind of take their salaries in one place and get the same salary elsewhere. So yeah. if you're taking a salary cut to move to Boise that's proportional with the drop in cost of living, you might not end up much better on a relative basis. But you can sort of take the salary and live elsewhere, it can be quite a benefit to some people.
0: This is not just people that are leaving their jobs in one city and moving to these others. They're keeping those same jobs and taking it with them to their new place. There are some downsides specifically for the cities. They have to deal with these growing pains. You get an influx of more people. Those home prices start rising. You get traffic congestion there. And then even for the cities, you know, the people there sometimes aren't joining the workforce there. They're bringing their jobs with them. So that could also be an impact to the cities.
1: And we kind of focused on Boise in this article because it really is kind of embodying at the moment some of the best and worst of what happens when boom times come to smaller cities. Boise's economy is taking off. It's doing great right now, but it's also sort of outgrowing its infrastructure a little bit. Home prices are rising really quickly. There's more traffic than there used to be. And you do hear some grumbling among people who have lived there a long time. All of a sudden, their hometown has become less affordable. So it's definitely a double-edged sword for sure.
0: Some cities, however, are embracing it. There's programs in different areas to lure people who wouldn't otherwise consider a move. One in particular, there's a program in Tulsa, Oklahoma that gives remote workers $10,000 in cash just to start living there.
1: Yeah, definitely. This is something that people are sort of trying around the country. There's one in Tulsa, there's one in a region in Alabama, there's one in Vermont. And the idea just being that, People who have the ability to work remotely from anywhere, why not try to lure them to your area? And so some of these places are just kind of handing out cash. These are programs you apply to them, and if you're accepted into them, you move, and they might help you move or give you a place, co-working space or something like that, and then give you some cash to get settled it can be a real boon for these places i think tulsa was when they first set this program in motion they were expecting a couple thousand applicants and i think they got like ten thousand of them so it popularity far exceeded what they were expecting
0: and this trend just does seem to be increasing this remote working trend being able to go to these other cities and take your job with you the numbers are kind of showing that this is increasing
1: yeah, absolutely, and I think I think there's a couple factors at play here. One is, you know, with technology, the way it is, it's easier to work remotely for certain jobs. All you need is a computer connection, the ability to Skype every now and then, and then you you also have just sort of the economic climate. The economy's been good, unemployment's low, which means that workers have a bit more sway than they than they used to, and sort of in mm-hmm. the later stage stages of an economic cycle like what we have now. Employers tend to be a bit more lenient. Workers tend to be a bit more emboldened. So you do see a bit of a dispersal of population like what we're seeing now.
0: Ben Eisen, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.